0: Ronald Reagan and Pope John Paul II, the partnership that changed the world. Today, we're in Washington at a conference devoted to that subject. With us today, an eyewitness to the relationship between President Reagan and Pope John Paul II, the former Attorney General of the United States, Edwin Meese III. Welcome to Uncommon Knowledge. I'm Peter Robinson. A graduate of Yale and the law school at the University of California at Berkeley, Edwin Meese III served as legal affairs secretary for the newly elected governor of California, Ronald Reagan, from 1967 to 1968, and then as chief of staff to the governor from 1969 until Governor Reagan left office in early 1975. From 1981 to 1985, Mr. Meese served in the Reagan administration as counselor to the president. From 1985 until the end of the administration, he served as the 75th Attorney General of the United States. Mr. Meese now holds emeritus status as the Heritage Foundation's Ronald Reagan chair in public policy. And emeritus, once again, is a distinguished visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution. No one knew Ronald Reagan better. And this is Ronald Reagan on Attorney General Meese. If Ed Meese is not a good man, there are no good men. Ed Meese, welcome. Thank you. I add two quotations, both both from 1982. One is the historian Arthur Schlesinger Jr. He's writing after a visit to Moscow, quote, those in the US who think the Soviet Union is on the verge of collapse are kidding themselves. The second is Ronald Reagan addressing the British Parliament, also in 1982, quote, in an ironic sense, Karl Marx was right. We are witnessing today a great revolutionary crisis, but the crisis is happening not in the West, but in the Soviet Union." Close quote. How did Ronald Reagan of Eureka College in Illinois miss what the great historian Arthur Schlesinger Jr. of Harvard, I beg your pardon, how did Ronald Reagan see what Arthur Schlesinger Jr. of Harvard University missed?
1: Well, one of the things is Ronald Reagan went into that study of communism with an open mind and was not uh, determined by his ideology, uh, as I suspect uh, Mr. Schlesinger's uh, at least was uh, somewhat uh, misguided by his own ideology. But uh, with Ronald Reagan, uh, he learned, first of all, most people don't realize that Ronald Reagan was a voracious reader. Uh, He liked to study. He had studied the founding, he was very well versed in the Constitution, he was well versed in the Bible. Uh, he had an enormous repertoire of information that he used, that's why the there, discussion was uh, given this morning about his uh, speech writing. Uh, Before he would do anything else, before the speech writers would get working, he would give the concept of a speech. And then uh, later on as they went, he edited it really based upon all the things that he knew. But one of the things he knew was communism. Because in the 1940s, when he was president of the Screen Actors Guild, as he called it, his union, uh, the Communist Party USA was trying to take over the movie industry because they wanted to use it for propaganda propaganda, obviously, and so they were infiltrating the various unions, the Cameraman's Union, the Grips Union, Stage Manager's Union, and they tried to also take over the Screen Actors Guild. And so uh, Ronald Reagan literally led all of those unions in defeating the communists. That got him interested in the subject, and he read a great deal about it, both domestic communism, communism theory, and also international communism. And so he had formed his own ideas by the time he became governor, really, and already was uh, talking about these ideas of how do we overcome what was then our enemy
0: in the Cold War. That's, I'm embarrassed to admit this, but the way you put it just now had never occurred to me before. We listened this morning to the panel of Poles talk about what communism was like. Obviously for Ronald Reagan in Hollywood in those days, it was not like living in Poland but he had direct experience of them.
1: Yes, he did, even to the point where he would come to to work in the studios armed because there were threats on his life.
0: A man with a plan. Let me quote your 1992 memoir with Reagan. Quote, Reagan was more than simply anti-communist. He was an anti-communist with a game plan, close quote. Can you explain that, Ed?
1: Well, he actually had a strategy. He felt, first of all, he knew that they were vulnerable from an economic standpoint because so much of all of their uh, national wealth really was being go- uh, put into supporting their military and their aggressiveness around the world. And uh, so he knew they were eco- economically vulnerable, but he also knew and he had this strong belief that freedom ultimately will overcome oppression. And so he knew that that it's very difficult for any uh, government Uh, even a a very oppressive government like the Soviets had uh, to keep their people under wraps for a long period of time and that ultimately the human spirit would result in people wanting to be free. And he was very sympathetic to the captive nations particularly because these were not just Russians who happened to have a Soviet form of government but these were countries that many of them that had been free before they'd been taken over by the Soviet movement.
0: And I just want to I wanna go back to this point because it's so basic and it's the kind of thing that's likely to be forgotten in coming years. And that is the extent to which Ronald Reagan in holding these views and acting on them stood out. So, Richard Nixon, Henry Kissinger, the order of the day was detente. Car- when Gerald Ford became president after Nixon resigned, he refused to meet Alexander Solzhenitsyn because of fears of offending the Soviet Union. Jimmy Carter gave a speech at Notre Dame in which he talked about overcoming our, quote, inordinate fear of communism. And then, this is is absolutely the dominant mode of thinking in both parties, Nixon, Carter. And then, of course, we have Dick Allen's famous account. Ronald Reagan in 1977 is a former governor. He hasn't declared for president yet and they're talking about foreign policy and Ronald Reagan says, Dick, would you like to hear my theory of the Cold War? Well, of course, Governor. My theory of the Cold War is simple. We win and they lose. The question is, what gave him whatever it was, the courage, the insight? How how did he so self-confidently place himself in opposition to the entire mindset?
1: Well, he wasn't just being facetious, as some people have accused him at the time of being when that became known. But actually, what he was saying is, I have a strategy which is not just giving in or allowing a moral equivalency between Marxism and freedom. Uh, It is a matter of knowing their their vulnerability, uh, both from an ideological standpoint and from an economic standpoint. It was his feeling that they can be beaten and that freedom can win. In other words, it was a belief in the system that had been the foundation for American thought, American political thought, since the 1780s. And uh, he felt that, that what we knew in this country, uh, our sense of freedom, that ultimately that can overcome even a, the tyranny of a Soviet Union.
0: You write in, with Reagan, you, dis- you describe the elements of the president's thinking, and you write this, quote, it followed that the United States and the Western world in general should stop retreating before the communist challenge and begin competing in earnest against the Soviets. Again, explain.
1: Well, it was an idea of competing in, in a number of ways. It was not to engage in military action because that's the last thing Ronald Reagan wanted to do or felt it was necessary to do, but to compete in terms of economics, uh, to uh, compete in terms of information, to uh, compete in terms of persuasion of people, to support resistance movements in the uh, w- in the communist world, uh, to support leaders uh, like Lechvoessa uh, and and others like that. In other words, to actually let people around the world know that the that Marxism-Leninism is not foreordained and is not necessarily going to succeed, but that in fact there can be strong non-military, but nevertheless, ideological, you might say, uh, in some ways, uh, striking the sense of patriotism, uh, in some ways, uh, uh, faith, and that there are a number of ways in which to compete with and ultimately to overcome the whole communist
0: regime. The Strategic Defense Initiative, or SDI, you held the first meetings on that subject in your office in the West Wing. And then in a televised address in, from the Oval Office on March 23, 1983, the President announced the initiative. Research that might lead to a system that would enable us to destroy incoming ballistic missiles before they could reach their targets. No longer mutual assured destruction, but actual defense against incoming missiles. How did that fit into the President's game plan?
1: Well, Ronald Reagan had always said, and this goes back to his days as governor, that a nuclear war could not be won and should never be fought uh, because the destruction of any such kind of a conflict would just be, uh, would wipe out uh, not just one nation, but perhaps many nations. And so uh, that's why he felt we must be able to do something better than that. And he had met with Edward Teller, for example. great uh, physicist. uh, Yes, uh, when when he was governor, because Ed Teller was uh, then at the University of California. And uh, he talked with him, and he talked with others. And that was why uh, uh, when a group of people had been working on this, Danny Graham and others had been working on this idea also, uh, and that's why we had this meeting in my office uh, with some people who were very uh, uh, interested in this subject. And so as a result, we put together a conference uh, with the governor, uh, then with the president in 1982 with Edward Teller, and that led then to his idea being fleshed out into an actual strategy. And then the next step was to talk with the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And there's always, within the military, there's always a lot of competition for budget dollars. And so there was some resistance in certain areas of the Pentagon. But uh, Ronald Reagan, as he had them develop a strategic plan for our defense said, and I want you to also look at the idea of a strategic defense initiative, a ballistic missile defense system. And they came back to him about uh, eight months later with their plan. And one of the things they said that as we have looked into it, the Joint Chiefs believe that strategic defense initiative, (coughs) a way of combating uh, nuclear war uh, through missile defense is not only militarily uh, necessary, but it is also morally necessary. And so they really gave him the assurance that he was on the right track with SDI. And I might say that if, <coughs> if the nation had pursued uh, SDI with the same uh, energy and enthusiasm that he gave it during the rest of his term as president, Uh, then I think today we would have a very robust system already deployed and make us a lot safer in view of what's happening around the world with two nations that now have nuclear capabilities for which weren't even contemplated as potential nuclear opponents at that time. North Korea and...
0: North Korea and uh, Iran. And Iran. The New York Times called the Strategic Defense Initiative, quote, I'm not making this up, I'm quoting it, a pipe dream, close quote, Margaret Thatcher, Prime Minister Thatcher, had doubts about it at the time, but in her memoirs, she wrote that looking back on it, quote, Ronald Reagan's original decision on SDI was the single most important of his presidency, close quote. Now, can you explain what the New York Times meant, what they thought they meant, when they referred to SDI as a pipe dream?
1: Well, uh, the the New York Times, uh, as is, uh, Often wrong, let's put it that way, charitably, uh, and uh, and uh, and they they were so wrapped up in this whole idea of detente, uh, and also, quite frankly, uh, not really believing that that the communist Soviet communism was as much of a threat. Uh, they were they were <laughs> part of that detente group that felt that uh, even the moral equivalency ideas were not foreign to the New York Times. And so uh, that, that <laughs> was why they just had no confidence in it whatsoever. Now, with Margaret Thatcher, it, yes. was, a little, it was interesting because basically the whole idea of... of uh, of uh, deta- uh, rather of a hedge uh, against war uh, and the nuclear balance and those kinds of things were something that in Europe was very much the uh, basic idea and the basic foundation of the defense system at that time. Uh, just as NATO was going to be installing uh, nuclear or potentially nuclear weapons in Europe to combat what the so- Soviet Union already had there, and that that sort of that concept. And one of the things she was worried about as I read the materials uh, about her later, uh, was she was worried that somehow this would would violate or would degrade that sense of uh, nuclear balance that was preventing war in Europe. Uh, and so I think the more she learned, and as indicated by uh, what uh, you've mentioned there, uh, I think she really came to, to understand what Ronald Reagan had in mind. And his idea was that, uh, we have technological capabilities that were never thought of one generation ago, particularly the generation that preceded his. And look at all the things that have happened there. Why can't we put that same energy, that same good thinking, uh, that same exploration
0: into something that would really prevent nuclear war in the future? And it was also, correct me if I'm mistaken, it was also quite an aggressive move. You can't do something like the Strategic Defense Initiative, the research, unless you have a buoyant economy and technical dynamism of the kind the Soviets could never match. That's
1: correct and actually the strong economy was one of the major uh, strategies that he had in dealing with the whole Soviet uh, movement. You remember when he took office in 1981, uh, we had three major problems in our country. Uh, Number one, we had the deepest economic crisis that we'd had since the Great Depression. Uh, secondly, we had a national security threat and we were, had a great deal of uh, jeopardy potentially uh, because on the one hand, we had an increasingly aggressive Soviet Union. Uh, they had already captivated a good deal of Eastern and Central Europe. They were operating uh, there or their satellites were in uh, Africa. We had a, a, a Soviet bastion Uh, really in uh, Cuba, uh, 90 miles off our shore. We had a Marxist bastion in Nicaragua, which was subverting El Salvador. So our own hemisphere was now under attack. And so uh, it was really a very serious situation. Uh, And that's why uh, Ronald Reagan was so intent of number one, getting a strong economy, number two, uh, oh, the other problem is, while the Soviets were more aggressive, our military had declined considerably in the aftermath of the Vietnam War. <laughs> and it was, so the, another important thing was to take on the uh, the military and build up the military to where we had traditionally been uh, since war, during and since World War II. And then finally, uh, he believed it was necessary to engage the Soviet Union on a moral plane. That's why the... Uh, the evil speech, the the evil empire speech, and the the focus of evil, uh, that sort of thing. He felt that that was as important to raise those issues as it was to do the economic and the military and the diplomatic uh, strategies.
0: Once again from your memoir with Reagan, quote, a vivid example of the Reagan strategy in action was the liberation of Poland. Reagan conducted this effort in concert with Pope John Paul II, himself a native of Poland, whom the president greatly admired, close quote. Let me ask a word or two about the relationship between those two men. Ronald Reagan is raised in a small, we've heard that his father was Catholic, but his mother was a member of a small Protestant denomination, the Disciples of Christ, and although I think everyone around him understood he was a man of faith, organized religion, well, He didn't go to church often as president. He said it was because of the disruption of the Secret Service. True enough, but it's also organized religion seems not to have played a central role in his thinking. Relationship with God, yes. And then Ronald Reagan admires and cooperates with or coordinates actions with the leader of the biggest of the, the most organized denomination that exists, how explain how what what is it in John Paul the second that a Protestant kid from the Midwest appreciates well, first of
1: all, Ronald Reagan had a, a very strong faith uh, he was he had been uh, involved in church activities as a kid. His mother was very active in her church mm-hmm. and uh, she uh, made sure that he was very active in, all the way in to, through his high school years before he went to college. Uh, he was a very active member of that church. And uh, beyond that, he also was very well read. He had an encyclopedic knowledge of the Bible. Uh, Paul Kengor, who was here earlier today, has written about Ronald Reagan uh, and his religious faith, and one of the things he pointed out that Ronald Reagan had more allusions to biblical topics and biblical uh, uh, verses and so on in his speeches than all the other presidents put together. And uh, so religion was a very important part of his life. The reason you didn't see much about it was he never wanted anyone to think that he was using his religion for political purposes or that he was showing off how religious he was. Uh, I suspect that the actions of some previous presidents may have had something to do with that aversion to uh, being looked in that direction. But uh, in any event, but but just in his daily life, in everyday conversation. And it's been very interesting just within the last month now to have, believe it or not, in the Washington Post, uh, copies of a letter that he wrote yes. to Nancy's father as he was dying to, make, to give him a, a, almost a capsule version of his religious faith, hoping that that was something that Loyal Davis, Dr. Davis, would be helpful to him uh, before he passed on.
0: December 13, 1981, Ger- General Jaruzelski declares martial law in Poland cuts off communications with the outside world, arrests 6,000 members of Solidarity, on and on and on it goes. And the President and Pope John Paul II meet in 1983, as I recall. There's coordination of some kind. That's what I want to ask you about.
1: Actually, 82,
0: 82 June excuse excuse of 82. Me. I'm sorry, I misspoke, June, June of 82. Solidarity, we know the story, there's a decade. Solidarity regains its legal status in 1989, and in 1990, Lech Wałęsa takes office as president of a democratic Poland. Now, a couple of quotations once again. Dick Allen, Richard Allen, the president's first national security, security advisor, quote, this, relationship between Reagan and the pope, this was one of the great secret alliances of all time. Second quotation, George Weigel, John Paul II's biographer, That the claim that the two men entered into a conspiracy to effect the downfall of communism is journalistic fantasy, close quote. So how do you characterize what took place between the White House and the Vatican and between those two men? What's the correct way for uh, us to understand it?
1: Well, it's interesting that even last night there was a little bit of a dispute between yes. two of the people who were speaking about what just what this was, uh, and I think that uh, George, it's somewhere between Dick Allen and George Weigel. Uh, I think <laughs> right. I think there's no question. I believe that what you had here, first of all, going back to Ronald Reagan uh, and his religious faith, I think it was that faith which which made him admire the Pope, uh, and particularly this Pope, because you had a very strong person on behalf of his, his faith, upon behalf of his church, and that the, the whole thing of what he had done up to that time, uh, R- Ronald Reagan admired, and admired him as, a, as the leader of his church. So, so it was natural, I think, for him to admire that kind of leadership. But beyond that, then, what you had was you had two people, both leaders, one in the secular world, one in the religious world, with parallel interests, And so when those parallel interests uh, were uh, obvious, uh, as what happened in in Poland there, where they were under attack, if you will, uh, then it was logical then for Ronald Reagan particularly with his ideas about uh, defeating communism, to cooperate. And I'd say what you have is parallel interests. Uh, it was not, a, as George Weigel says, it was not some deal, or as Carl Bernstein wrote about, it was not an alliance or an, alliance. A, a treaty or anything like that. What it was was two people with co- interests in common who were cooperating, and as they cooperated, learned to trust
0: and appreciate and to like each other. Now you sat on the National Security Council for all eight years of the administration. Let me ask a couple of questions. If I'm asking for classified information, just slap me, Ed. But a couple oh, no, of questions. Put you in jail. <laughs> how many times? How many times did you believe there was a credible threat that the Soviets might roll into Poland?
1: I don't well. Uh, I, I think there was always that possibility, but I don't remember it at any time, particularly during uh, during, Dece- during the, the year 1981, where that appeared to be an imminent threat. I see. In other words, the Soviets always had large military forces, and they always were using them to oppress, or at least be a threat, to a whole number of nations, the Balkan countries and several others. But the idea of an imminent threat of that, uh, I don't think uh, was at least I can't remember that being talked about prior to December. Did
0: did Ronald Reagan's taking office and the military buildup, of course, he'd barely begun by 1981, but did that change the psychology? Was there some sense in which the American, um, was there some sense in which Ronald Reagan's presence would have made the Soviets think twice from the military point of view?
1: Well, I, I think that's, in all probability, the answer is yes. But we don't know. Of course, what is happening at the present time in the Soviet Union, as you remember, Brezhnev was on his last legs. Yes. And then you had Andropov and Chernenko, And uh, as Ronald Reagan said, <laughs> when it came to whether he would meet with a Soviet leader, he says, I want to meet with them, but they keep dying on me. <laughs> well, finally, in 1985, he got a live one uh, in Gorbachev. And uh, and I think that, that was very important because... Uh, at, at that time, Gorbachev was a, was a, a diehard communist, no question about it. But he also understood the West better than his predecessors, and therefore, I think he realized that the United States certainly, by the time he became uh, general secretary in 1985, he realized that the American military was now going to be the most powerful military in the world, and it was a a, a force that was enough so that the Soviet Union did not have military superiority, which they had essentially had up until that time. Right,
0: one more question about your years on the National Security Council. <clears throat> we read, read here, this book, that book, another article, get, to my understanding, which is limited, it's a kind of impressionism, and I want to ask you to fill, me, fill us in, if you would. Bill Casey with CIA, is making sure that solidarity he's working with lane kirkland at afl-cio to make sure solidarity gets funds copying machines and so forth then uh, judge clark and his successors as national security advisors are giving information to the vatican they're sharing information with the vatican vatican diplomatic corps has sources we don't have and vernon walters Former General Vernon Walters acts as a kind of emissary. He visits the Vatican, as I recall, it's in the range of a dozen times. All that happened. Right. So the coordination is constant and at quite a high level. There's a lot going on between the, White, the Reagan White House and the John Paul II Vatican. Yes. All right. <laughs> yeah. If well, you feel the urge to elaborate, <laughs> give into it. Well, it, it was a logical
1: follow-up uh, to do this to provide the ways in which, without using military force, we could strengthen those forces which were combating Marxism and which were constantly moving towards uh, organizing people in the various countries under the yoke of the Soviet Union and organizing resistance and ultimately organizing a situation where it would not be possible for the Soviet Union to continue, particularly with their aggression, but let alone just to maintain where they were at that particular time. So it was a way in which to carry out the strategy that Ronald Reagan had, moral engagement, making it very clear through the diplomatic uh, contacts with the Soviet Union that we would not stand for any more aggression, even if it meant using military force. Now, it was never plainly said in those words, but it was very clear that we would not take any more aggression such as they had had in Afghanistan and other places. And then uh, thirdly, that we would do everything we can to roll back the previous Soviet aggression, and that was where the assistance, information assistance, intelligence assistance, uh, information to people, uh, revving up Radio Free Europe and Radio Liberty, all of those kinds of non-military ways in which to provide resistance to the Soviets.
0: Ed, if I may, a couple of last questions here. When he visited Washington in 2004 for President Reagan's funeral, Mikhail Gorbachev was asked, if Ronald Reagan won the Cold War. And his reply was, quote, that's not serious, close quote. And the article in the Washington Post continued, quote, the changes Gorbachev wrought in the Soviet Union were undertaken, he argued, not because of any foreign pressure or concern, but because Russia was dying under the weight of the Stalinist system, close quote. The Soviet Union just fell in under the weight of its own rotten system and it would have done that if Ronald Reagan had never been born. How do you answer that?
1: Well, just by looking at the facts. Uh, what would have happened, I think, if it had not been for Ronald Reagan, uh, a lot of and the United States having built up its strength and so on, and the other things that had taken place, the Soviet Union might have fallen on the weight of all of its wrongdoing, uh, economic wrongdoing, its military buildup and all that, but it would have taken at least probably two, three, four decades and may never have happened. Because one of the things that the Soviets would have done and Gorbachev would have done it if he'd followed his predecessors, was at the soon as there was any armed resistance or any popular uprising, uh, he would have called in the troops and put it down. And so what Ronald Reagan did was create a situation in which number one, the Soviets could not continue as they had been either with aggression or even with captivating the other nations and so on perpetually, Uh, but also uh, the fact that uh, uh, Gorbachev was not able to maintain the Soviet primacy over these other countries perpetually. And that's why I think that if it were not for Ronald Reagan, it would have been perhaps several decades before the Soviets would have fallen, or maybe never, because one of the things they would have done is utilize their force then in order to get more funds, more resources, and that sort of thing. They were already working on things technologically with pipelines and other things to improve their economic situation, which Ronald Reagan stopped. And the the economic warfare, along with the information warfare and uh, other types of warfare, together I think was what ultimately led to their demise. The wall coming down through popular resistance in 1989 and then ultimately the implosion of the Soviet Union in 1991.
0: Attorney General Mies in Rome in February 1988 had a private meeting with Pope John Paul II. I've already asked you to tell us what happened on the National Security Council. Can you let us in on what you and the Pope discussed?
1: Uh, It was a great meeting. It was a great, uh, the the opportunity to to meet this great man. And everything that's been said about him is absolutely true from my standpoint, both for what I know about him, but also meeting him. You knew that God had taken care of the church by having a leader such as that to be the Pope at that particular point in history. But the, the Opportunity just to talk with him for 15 or 20 minutes was just a great privilege for me. And we talked about some of the things that, again, we are two countries had in common. Uh, and that was, of course, the the morality of youth was a topic very much on his mind and something that we had, were concerned about in our, in the Justice Department and elsewhere. Uh, we talked about the drug problem in the United States. Uh, we also uh, talked about how some, some of the Catholic bishops, which you heard a little bit about that uh, last night, I believe, uh, how there were some problems with them. Uh, in the United States. In the United States. Uh, doing things that were inimical to what Ronald Reagan was trying to do in some of these other areas uh, in which the the Pope said, well, you know, sometimes even bishops make mistakes. (laughs) And uh, so it was really a great conversation and I I remember it vividly
0: to this day. Did you walk out of that meeting just as Lutheran as you were when you walked in?
1: (laughs) Uh, I believe I did, but a Lutheran with great appreciation for the
0: head of the Catholic Church. Last question. Nobody under 30, 30 grown people, nobody under 30 can remember a single event that we just talked about. So for your, think of your grandchildren, think of your great-grandchildren, you have great-grandchildren. What do they need to hold on to? Can you sum up Ronald Reagan, what he meant to the country and the world? Can you sum it up in a couple of sentences? What do they need to hold on to?
1: Well, I think, They need to hold on to the fact that what our founders of the United States had in mind as the basic principles and the foundation for their thinking, uh, the sense of freedom, the sense of responsibility, those kinds of concepts are as important today as they were two centuries ago and will be over the next centuries in the future. They have to know that, but in order to know that, they also have to know our history. History is extremely important. Ronald Reagan had studied history minutely, and so he was able to incorporate the fund foundation and the origins of the country into almost everything he did. Uh, and so that's why his concern about the Constitution, why he w- was so concerned about appointing judges who would be faithful to the Constitution, it was a part of his being. And so we have to have uh, new, p- young people understand our history but also understand what freedom is all about and also to have some idea of what happened during the Cold War so that they can understand why uh, it was so important to free Poland and the other captive nations. And. If, if they will have this understanding of history and it's, and the perspective on why that's important to f- the freedom of the other peoples in the world, but particularly to continuing freedom in this country, uh, I think then they will have the background they need. It's not happening now in our education systems. And I think both at the high school, even the grammar school level, and also at the higher education level, uh, this is probably the greatest challenge that we have as far as uh, providing future generations with the basic understanding they need of our history and the principles and the, and the both moral uh, and also uh, patriotic foundations which have gotten us to this particular point in our history in the history of the world.
0: Edwin Meese III, thank you.